Hello, listeners. This is Dave McGuire from Nerds on Film. And I just want to take a second to talk to you. If you're enjoying the content that you're hearing on Nerds on History, come on and join us over at the sister podcast, Nerds on Film, where you can hear everyday people talk about film, fandom, everything you can think of underneath the sun of Hollywood. So come on by and enjoy, because I think you'll go for a good laugh. Mic check, check one, two. Checking, check, check one. Hey, Eric. Yes, Brian. Did you know that in Papua New Guinea, it's New Year's tradition for the youngest child in the tribe to find the oldest woman and slap her? And here's what they do. If she doesn't lose consciousness, it'll be a prosperous New Year. But if she passes out, famine. Oh my god, I've never heard of that before. That That's really interesting. That's fascinating. No, I'm kidding. <sighs> Revenge! Revenge is sweet! It took 18 episodes, but I did it! Ah! I am invincible! Are you finished? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. Eric, Happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Year, my friend. I'm curious, how was your holidays? I had a wonderful time. I really did. It was nice to have a little bit of a break. I want to thank our listeners, actually, for putting up with that break for a little bit, because uh, you guys have been so loyal and so eager to hear new episodes, and then we kind of threw you a little curveball with our mini-episode. But we deserve a chance to take a break, have a breather, and it was a really, really nice one. My, my family and I had a great time. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's very good. No, I had family come up from Southern California, and we hung out in the house a long time. I watched a lot of Christmas movies. In fact, for me... What's interesting around New Year's is my my parents pretty much de-decorate the house before New Year's Eve. Wow. That that depresses me a little bit because I'm of the mindset I observe Christmas all the way through to January 6th as I was raised to do it. But what I do is there's a ceremony that takes place. As we are slowly taking down the decorations, we are watching Christmas movies as we're doing it. And basically, my rule is if there's still a decoration up, I get to put on another movie when it's when the, the last one's over. <laughs> and uh, I did like two or three movies yesterday. Oh, wow. Got it all out of my system. See, I usually leave my stuff up until January 6th, not in observance of the holiday, but because I'm extremely lazy. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yours is, I mean, I'm sure all of our listeners have seen the Ankh and the, the Obelisk. It can kind of be just this, oh... That's kind of weird, but okay, yeah, it's holiday-themed. It's it's my heart and soul. Yeah, it is, <clears throat> indeed. If I can leave my heart and soul up for an extra week, I will. And, you know, it also takes a lot to put all that stuff up and take it down. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it so, totally does. It was a family funny. effort to get all this stuff down yesterday for us, too. Happy 2013. It's going to be still a big here. year for us. We're still here. We survived <laughs> the, world not end. the supposed Mayan apocalypse. I'm sure there'll be another apocalypse and doomsday prediction for the following year. Yeah, it always happens. There usually is. There's it, something yeah, exactly. out there. Probably our an asteroid is, I think, is the next, next one. Actually, no. You know, there was this big uh, kerfuffle recently because there was predictions in the past couple of years that this asteroid was going to be swinging around in 2040, very, very close to Earth, and that it was essentially, if it had gotten right in this kind of little pinhole spot, right, if it had just gotten just the right spot, it could very well strike Earth. And they found that it's actually well outside of that spot. So we're going to be fine in 2014, just like we were in 2012. We were, we were okay. Only this was a real credible threat. Was this the asteroid that if it wasn't going to hit us in 2014, it was going to hit us in 2045? Yeah. Or 2040 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. We're totally fine. We're good. We're, we're cool. totally good. We're totally cool. Don't worry about it. We have Yay. these little stray visitors mm-hmm. from the asteroid belt that come by from time to time, well, but uh, we're, we're good. I have to admit I was disappointed because I was really hoping that NASA was going to like pay Ben Affleck and Bruce, <laughs> Bruce Willis, Willis. <laughs> to hop on a rocket with nukes and destroy that thing. Well, we can still send them <clears throat> into space without any hope of coming back. That, that's okay, right? 
It's kind of harsh, don't you think? Yeah, I'm just kidding. I actually, <laughs> I actually don't mind Bruce Willis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just oh. kidding. I have nothing against Ben Affleck. I don't know why I said that, but I don't know. It was fun. Anyhow, lots of good stuff coming in the new yeah. year. And you, and you know, we talk about history a lot. We've never talked about the history of ourselves at all. Like how Nerdonomy came to be. And we're not going to devote the whole episode to this, of course. Since it's a new year, we're, as you probably have seen at this point, we have a new website up online. Yes. Oh, I've been waiting, just waiting, waiting, waiting Definitely. to hit that publish button. And to finally do so was very, yeah, very satisfying. Absolutely. And then we have, of course, a new blog, right? That's we do. on that new website. With brand new content you could check out right now. In fact, yeah. speaking of the asteroid belt, if you haven't seen it already, give it a check out. Uh, I've got a little blog posting up there about... Uh, member of the solar system here that's oftentimes forgotten about Cirrus, which is a uh, classified as a dwarf planet. However, I make a case for it to be a real planet. Cirrus is in like the what they named the satellite radio channel after, correct? Or am I thinking of a different name? I think you're thinking of a different name. Yeah, this is C-E-R-E-S. Cirrus. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah. I'm totally thinking of a different name. That's totally cool. Yeah, well, I'm not an astronomer, so... That's okay, because yeah. I kind of am. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Amateur astronomer, anyhow. I will say that it's a lot of fun to read. Uh, take it with what it is. Uh, I make my case for it as a planet, but be free to give your opinion and comments on it in the in the comment section below. I'm happy to hear what you folks have to say. Awesome. And I will eventually contribute to the blog. I'm not a strong blog writer. I, I tried writing a blog for a while, and it was mostly very minor updates. I couldn't go at length and do it. So I'll do the occasional op-ed, I think. Sure. And uh, you guys, Sarah is very passionate about the blog, and David's Absolutely. a strong writer. Sean, our loving editor wants to contribute pieces as well. All the nerds shall contribute, and you as listeners can contribute as well. Just go ahead and, and give us comments in the in the sections Please. below. Tell us your thoughts and views on the blogs that we're posting, and uh, definitely give us uh, feedback. You know where to send that feedback to. Definitely. And this will be the first of what will hopefully be a lot of cool new things we're going to do in the new year. Oh, man. We have plans. We're not going to discuss all of them, uh, because many of them are, are still in the early stages. But and some we of them we're, have... we're legally not allowed to discuss. That's here. right. But we've got all yeah. sorts of really cool stuff yeah. that we are... We're planning for you folks. A little little hook, line, and sinker for you if you're listening. But anyhow, back to what you were saying. Back to our origin story, right? right. Because uh, Well, we, really, it starts with our friendship when yeah, you really think about it. It does. Because for those who don't remember, Eric and I are co-workers. We've worked together for about two years now. Almost two years, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think it has been two years now. You it started has been, in, yeah, because I started in November, that's right. November of, of 10. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's crazy to think it's been that long already. I know. But uh, we were having a conversation... And it was mostly we were on we were both on break, and I was checking the news, and it was about the protests that were going on in Egypt. And this is the point where Mubarak had not stepped down as president of Egypt yet. Right, he hadn't been deposed yet. Yeah, but, but there was, was some. But a couple of his cabinet members had already stepped down. I think his vice president. And the protests weren't full force at that yeah, time. Yeah, and I just looked over him, and it was like crazy stuff. Huh? And he's like, and then what ended up happening <laughs> was Eric went off and did this five minute, very insightful <laughs> comment about the Egyptian people. <laughs> And uh, Because, again, those of you who haven't listened to the show, I'm slightly <laughs> obsessed with Egypt, ancient and new. Had no idea what Eric's background was all about. And uh, I was like, this dude is fascinating. Because <laughs> with me, usually a conversation ends up going into five different topics in a very short period of time. Because <laughs> my brain's very tangential. But he went along with the ride and was able to contribute. And we thought, this dude is actually interesting to talk to. And then what ended up happening is finding out more and more that he had a specialty in ancient Egypt. And I just asked him random questions about certain topics. Well, the great thing is that you would always come back, though, with something that I had never heard of either, and you would take it from a different angle, too. And we thought, you know, we would do this all the time, because we'd go out to lunch, or we would hang out after work, right. or what have you, and we'd be talking, and we would just... We were essentially doing a podcast with <laughs> beer glasses no in front of us instead of microphones. Yeah, and no recording and no audience, so there you go. 
And then one day, I think Eric even suggested, you know, it'd be kind of fun if we did a podcast one of these days. Right. And I just kind of shoot it away and thought, you know, well, that'd be cool. Me being a person who's aspiring more toward acting and filmmaking, I thought, well, doing a podcast, that's not really where I want to go. But I was very convincing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it just one day we were talking about it and other people were talking about what their favorite podcasts were. And thinking about it, thinking about how easy they are to make, when you consider how much effort it takes to make a film, because I've done several films at this point, yeah. produced and directed and writing, written them, mostly producing and directing. It takes a lot of money, lots of time to prep work for a very short production period. Right. You know, with a podcast, you need a good mic and a computer. Yeah. And you can be set up within an hour at the most. You know, when we're not talking about months of planning to get right. all the actors and everything coordinated together. To By comparison, it's a lot less work. A lot less work. At the same time, it is still a lot of work. And it takes a certain caliber of people to really make that happen. Yeah. And we're very fortunate because it wasn't just you and I who took on to this, to this idea. We, we kind of initially started the idea around Nerds on History. But we thought, you know, what, what else could we do? What yeah. other interests do we have? How else could we expand this? Could we even, dare I say, start two podcasts yeah. at one time, create a channel right. from the get-go? Whereas most people just do a single podcast. Right. Well, what, the reason why I even suggested that originally, because basically I had the, the why not moment. And I came to Eric and he's like, let's do it. You know, it didn't take hardly any convincing. It's just like, let's do it. And my buddy David, who of course you guys know is my Nerds on Film co-host, we were always talking about doing a web series of, or a web video series. Once was actually a scripted TV show, which we're still developing. We'll see whatever, if that ever gets off the ground. But, um, and it will. I have faith in it. But we were also talking about the idea of, we always love going to movies and talking about them. Because David and I, when we go to a movie, we'll be out in the parking lot for about an hour and a half afterwards talking about the movie. Not from necessarily a critical standpoint, just discussing it. And uh, I thought, that could be a podcast. That could easily be a podcast. And it's like, well, what do we call ourselves? And from the heavens, it just shined down nerds on film. At the time, there was nobody else out there with the name Nerds on Film. I was like, right. this is our shining opportunity. And then you texted me, and you're like, hey, I've got some ideas. Let me throw around a few for you, a couple ideas for the name of what we would call a channel. What do you think about Nerds on History for our podcast? And I thought, oh, perfect. Yeah. Fits it perfectly. And then you dropped the bombshell. Oh, well, well yeah, we're also going to have Nerds on yeah. Film, too. I'm like, oh, even better. Perfect. Yeah. Well, I also did go a little hyper with it because we, I was thinking at one point doing up to four podcasts because we were talking about nerds on theater and nerds on comics, right? And supplemental episodes. We even developed some <clears throat> some uh, artwork for it. Yeah, we, so did. We're, we did. We did. We're in the plan, er, very early planning stages. Yeah. And we were thinking of doing it like almost. <laughs> I was almost thinking, oh yeah, it's fine. I'll take like an hour to record, and I'll just do one a night. I don't have a need of social life. I'll just <laughs> I'll do <laughs> four nights a week. I'll just record my podcast, and then I edited the first episode of Nerds on History. <laughs> it's like Whoa. Nerds on Film, and it took me three hours. To, yeah. to cut and it was only cutting out 10 minutes of material cutting out the right 10 minutes was like oh my god okay so let's just stick with the two for now because <laughs> we already <laughs> recorded a pilot for each at that point right and uh, then my brother listened to the episode because I just wanted to throw his third at him for, for feedback and my brother has a background in video editing he's been video editing for 10 years on a non-professional level and then he just offered to say hey you know what this is awesome let I would like to offer my editing services to you for free. Which is huge. Because yeah, he well, is a very busy person. Yeah. He has uh, a lot going on for him right now. And to have him take time out of his busy life to come in and edit not one, but two podcasts every week uh, is huge. And, and so, he's also guest starred on a couple of our podcasts. And he has, yeah. I mean, he and he's provided all sorts of insight and guidance into the whole, the whole process. In fact, we initially, you know, we immediately made him... Uh, a member of the whole Nerdonomy family. Absolutely. Without him, Nerdonomy wouldn't exist. Yeah, and it's been a symbiote relationship because just as much as we've gotten stuff out of it, he has gotten so much out of being our editor. Yeah. And we are indebted to him 
to no end for being able to put our stuff together. Because we, frankly, we, we wouldn't be able to put these out in time if it wasn't for of course him being able to pick up the slack and get these done. Now, those first few episodes were were interesting because we were in totally unknown territory for us. I mean, we all listened to podcasts before, and we all generally had an idea of what we were going to be doing. But I don't think we realized just how good it was actually going to sound. And we were really surprised. We were happy because we were getting so much great feedback from just the first couple episodes before they even went, you know, live on iTunes when we were just having people sample them and listen to them and see, do we actually know what we're doing? Do we sound good enough to be uh, posted up online? And it was so wonderful to, to get that feedback and to know, this is great. This is, this is something that's going to work. Let's keep going. And that's when there was just this explosion of creativity and ideas and inclusion of another very important member of our team. Yeah, because what ended up happening was when I had pitched the idea to my, my close friends about doing a podcast, and this was around the 4th of July, if I'm not mistaken, I had pitched it to my friend Sarah. And she's like, oh my god, Nerds on Film, that sounds amazing. I want to be a guest. We hadn't even done an episode yet. We had no idea what we were going <laughs> to do as the episode. And she's like, I want to be, be a guest on the show. And he's like, sure, why not? Let's, let's play with it and see what ends up happening. And what ended up happening was she was so, you know, she offered so much perspective to the show and a whole other energy to what And we she's were doing. absolutely hilarious to boot. And she's very hilarious, yeah. That it was like, well, this is easy. You just need to be a, a co-host now, you know? Yeah. That really is what brought us to where we are today. Yeah. You know? How many episodes are we in now? This is 18. This is 18. Mm-hmm. If you think this- about it, with, with today and... I said it in the, the New Year's break episode, but if you count both of our podcasts and you listen to them you know, uh, in tandem, you would have a day and a half solid of listening to content. Yeah, that's yeah. wild. Now, if you really extrapolate that, because the human being, after human, human being sleeps for, what, eight hours a day? <laughs> so to subtract eight hours <laughs> out, of, out of your day, that's really 16 hours. Uh, that makes it a little more interesting, doesn't it? it that makes it more like two, three days, maybe, yeah. maybe four days. That is awesome. Yeah. And, you know, thank you, listeners, so much for all of your support, for everything that you've done. Uh, We really owe it, most of all, to all of you. Because if it wasn't for you, we would have no reason to do this every week. And to receive your emails and to see your comments on Facebook and on Twitter, it has inspired us so much. Thank you again for everything you've done for us here at Nerdonomy. We have so many cool things planned for 2013 that we're working very hard to get them out the door. So uh, the new website, obviously... Big feather in our cap, along with the new blog. So whole new ways for you to interact with us. And we've got more to come. Keep your ears open. We'll be talking about them in the next few months. Yeah. And when you think about it, though, what we do, we don't make a living at this at all. No. In fact, we, no. we are negative <laughs> for doing this. I mean, we're not negative. It's not like, no, if we don't go into our checking accounts, it's like, oh, God, what <laughs> but, are we going to do? But we, we, this is all out of pocket. This is all yeah. out of pocket. All of our production costs are out of pocket. And we've sold, I think, one T-shirt. <laughs> off of our site that was not from one of us. That's okay. Some mysterious person out there. If you know who you are, please raise your hand (laughs) because we would love to know who our first actual dollars came from that immediately went back into what we needed to do for... And it's one of my favorite t-shirts, too. It's the Julius Caesar. I came, I saw, I geeked out. Yeah, that's awesome. It's a great t-shirt. Even though we don't make any money at this, this is a job. It is a job that we have so much fun doing. It doesn't really feel like work. But if you think about it, you know, if we were to go to somebody even 30 years ago, and they ask, well, what do you do? Oh, I'm a podcaster. What the hell is that? So, so do you pick peas off of and the just plants throw them and throw them at people? Is <laughs> exactly. this what you do? <laughs> exactly. You mean a broadcaster? No, I'm a podcaster. Okay. Yeah. It's a strange term. Yeah. But it is kind of a strange job. It's a very strange job. Because you don't really make a whole lot of money off of it, if any money at all. Yeah. And you generally are your own boss. 
Yeah. You sit around, talking into equipment that you've gathered and found uh, as best you can. Uh, very few podcasters have really huge professional setups of professional studios and that nature. Most of them podcast right out of their garages or wherever they hey, be. Kevin Smith, the guy who, in a way, inspired us with his Smodcast channel. Now, he records, and of course, he's a successful filmmaker. This has become a whole new frontier for him. He records in his living room. Now, he, I've seen the video from when, because he does do some video of when he's podcasting now. He's at a computer with a couple of really good sounding mics. In fact, I'm pretty sure they're not unlike the mics we're using right now. And they're just talking. Seeing him in his house was a very empowering moment because that really yeah. means that with the right amount of money, and it wasn't that much money because we already had the computer, the mics really, we were thinking of using, weren't that expensive. Right. You know, it empowered us to make that decision to be able to do this. And the reason why I guess I'm even saying any of this is throughout time, cultures have had these stimuli that inspire these odd jobs that have come up. And we've decided to compile a list. Really, we even we did research of other lists that were out there where we've looked at what are some other odd jobs throughout history that yeah, people have had. Strangest professions that people once held or things that were kind of crazy or disgusting or weird or strange. And if I can launch us into uh, ancient history real quick. Please. If you haven't guessed already, I'm going to be talking about Egypt for the next few seconds. <laughs> what? <laughs> Those of you who called it, go ahead and pat yourself on the back. Unless you're driving, in which case, pull over, then pat yourself on the back. If you're playing the at-home game, that means you just won five points. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we should totally do that. Okay. Whenever Sorry. Eric whenever Eric mentions ancient Egypt... <laughs> Take a shot. <laughs> and when I say you know... Another five points. It's or it's interesting. Another five. Or it's points. interesting. Or clearly, um, clearly. Correct me um, if I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> That's your big one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyhow, ancient Egypt. There was a really rather interesting job, and it was uh, very early in Egyptian history that we actually see some of the first examples of it. If you look at a very famous artifact from ancient Egypt, known as the Narmer palette, there is a depiction of one of Egypt's first kings, King Narmer. And directly behind him is this gentleman who's carrying his shoes, his sandals. And the royal sandal was considered to be extremely important. Any kind of footwear denoted wealth, status, and was considered to be very much kingly. Uh, and thus, the person who was responsible for these extremely important items, these shoes that he was holding on to because the pharaoh was digging a ditch into an irrigation canal, you know, he was performing a ceremony, and so obviously he was doing it barefoot, didn't want to ruin his shoes, the sandal bearer, as they were known, had that really important job of holding onto his shoes. And it doesn't sound very important to us. If I walked behind you with a pair of sneakers, uh, just in case you decided that you wanted to start running or playing basketball, no one's really going to consider me to be all that important. But the fact that the shoe had such a different emphasis in their society than it does in ours shows you just how odd that job might have been, but how important it was to that person. In fact, even people who weren't responsible for this were still given the title of sandal bearer because it was considered to have moved into this uh, this whole other realm of importance. Yeah. And it's an interesting, if not uh, strange job. Well, when you think about it, I think of that and I go, of course, now my background is Catholicism and religion, so I'm going to counter that with a, with a parallel. Oh, you, oh, listeners at home, you got five points for that too. <laughs> We're playing on Team Brian right now. When my brother got confirmed, and he's not Catholic anymore, but that's okay. He's, I think he's fine with me mentioning that. When he was confirmed in the year 2001, I believe? Yes, 2001. The priest at our parish had a very uh, close relationship with the bishop of our diocese. In fact, he had been his professor, I think, in the seminary. So uh, the rules in our parish were you had to have at least 20 com confirmation candidates to have the bishop come to your parish. Otherwise, you had to go to the cathedral. 
to do it. We only had eight, but because of the relationship, he made an exception and he came oh, nice. to our parish. Which is cool because you see the bishop in a small church. It's There's still all the pomp and circumstance of him being a bishop right. present there, but in just this very more humble space. What I find interesting is aside from the normal altar servers that are there, there is a dedicated altar server to the bishop. And he deals with the mitre, which is his pointed hat. He's the hat carrier. He's the hat carrier, as it were. Because there are certain points when the bishop takes off his hat, um, particularly when he's reading the gospel, because it's a sign of humility, saying, yes, he has this authority, but he learns from the gospels like everyone else does. And there are a couple other moments where he has to take it off and put it back on. And there's also one interesting moment, too, is because he's a bishop, he wears, of course, the skull cap. And during communion, he takes that off. I'd never noticed that. So basically, during communion, he doesn't have the mitre on, doesn't have the skull cap on. He's just like any other priest. And thus, the, the hat bearer doubles his responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he just like, shoves it in his pocket or oh, something. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. But that's actually why there's, if you ever look really closely, there's that little loop that's on the top of the skull cap. Never seen it, no. No. It's so hard to notice. Some skull caps have this. It's so he can take his finger and just go... Oh, I thought it was like a little hook would descend from the ceiling and then pick it up and <laughs> deposit it back when he's yeah. done. <laughs> it's very subtle. Like, you can't really catch it with the naked eye. Uh, That's interesting. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. So just like thinking about these ceremonial positions, yeah. you know. Well, I'm sure if you if you really think about it hard, you could probably conjure up all sorts of different examples of this throughout history, right? In every different culture, I imagine, there's somebody whose responsibility it is to hold on to something. And that thing that they're holding on to is, is extremely important. You know, whether it be uh, a staff or some other symbol of authority or, or what have you. I'm sure there are plenty of examples of it throughout history and throughout the world. Well, I'll bring another religious one out there. Um, this is not so much used in the Catholic Church anymore, but it is very prominent in the Anglican faith and in the Episcopal Church in the United States. Um, and I'm trying to find the title of it right now, so give me a second while I pull it up. I should have had my friend Brian, the other Brian I know. Uh, he is a lifelong Episcopalian. And, really? Uh, yeah, and he was an, he calls himself an acolyte. But he basically was the acolyte is what they call their altar servers hmm. in that church. I've been to a couple of services there, and it is old school Catholic, but with a new school flair. What it's I mean like by buddy that, Jesus. <laughs> what I mean by that is like they still kneel for communion, which is hasn't been done since Vatican II. So they kneel for communion, but it just happens to be that it's a female priest who's <laughs> giving you communion. You know, that's how progressive it is. So weird how they keep some of the old traditions that keep it very firmly rooted in the old world. So yes, there are, always, there are all these weird positions that we see, these very ceremonial positions that we see within the church. Uh, one parallel that sticks around today is actually in the Anglican tradition uh, that started, of course, in the Catholic tradition, um, but was since done away with uh, in the Catholic church, is the role of the verger, the lead verger. And he is unique uh, of the acolytes, who are basically the altar servers, in the procession that comes in. He is dressed in a, what's the word, a black alb, which is a long, very thin, cut robe. Sometimes he'll be wearing a stole as well, which is that long, it looks like a scarf or a, a long shawl that is worn. It is usually worn by uh, a priest as well during some, like usually a priest wears it during confession, it's a purple one, similar garment. And then, interesting, depending on the church, he'll be wearing either a bow tie or one of those old kind of cravat looking neck pieces. Uh, and he carries with him a wooden scepter. And his job is, you no, know, he carries a scepter and he is very ceremonial. But his original function was to flack peasants out of the way <laughs> in the procession as the priest was getting toward the altar in the church. And just to clarify, this is this is a verger, not V'ger, from Star Trek the Motion Picture. Correct. Which was actually Voyager 6 who was sent out and then got consumed by a race of mechanical people who then sent it back to Earth. Correct. Okay, just making sure. It has nothing to do with that. And again, you would know what I was talking about if you would actually watch the very first movie, which you haven't done yet. Or Star Trek 2. No, we, oh, yeah, no, we watched part of Star Trek 2. I apologize. 
That's okay. Please continue. And I'm sure there's other religious titles that are very ceremonial. You know, I'm sure if looking at just the British monarchy, there is probably, without even going into any research, several people who have very distinct, very specific titles and, and roles. You know what the best man was for weddings? Hmm. <laughs> the reason why he was called the best man was it was the groom's most well-trained swordsman. Oh, really? Yeah. Since this is dates to a time where marriage was more of a contractual agreement with property and not about romantic love or anything like that, sometimes their wives were abducted. <laughs> so basically, if there's any attempt to stop the wedding, the best man was to stand by the groom to prevent assassination attempts and to defend his property, basically. Bring forth the greatest of all of those thieves of women who shall stand before me and guard my bride from her vengeful family who would be so inclined to steal my bride on my wedding day. <laughs> exactly. I actually pulled that out of time in history. I channeled that to myself right now. He just had a little seance. And, yeah, just a little one. Yeah. Just a little mini seance. I have an app for it. <laughs> Anyhow. The reason why I bring up the title of the verger is because it is found from the early days of the church. You know, this goes back probably at least 1,700 years, if not more. Yeah. So it's definitely a part of one of those weird little factoids in history. It's been around for a long time. Exactly. Yeah. But then again, still have a lot of weird jobs that have no longer... Oh, absolutely. And if you imagine the food taster has got to be one of the oldest jobs in the world. The food uh, taster. Not the greatest job in the world. Uh, if you uh, ended up eating something wrong, you would probably uh, end up getting extremely sick, if not die. Uh, but then again, you were always in the employment of somebody who was extremely wealthy or powerful, so that meant that you were eating pretty good food. So it was one of those jobs where you didn't really have a lot to do besides eat, but it could kill you at any time. Right, and this was a job designated for high members of the nobility and the monarch yeah. right, in some countries. And we see a lot of it very iconically in, in medieval Europe, of course, but you find it going back into ancient history, thousands of years, and around the world, uh, into, into Asia, into India, uh, into pretty much every corner of the globe, I can imagine. There's always been someone whose job it was to make sure that things were safe. And maybe it was beyond just testing the food and the drink, maybe it was going and examining the, the bedroom and bedchambers. Maybe it was making sure that everything was the way it was supposed to be, the place, everything was in its place, almost kind of like a bodyguard, but some with very, very specific roles. So this one, next one is another weird one you said. But. Well, if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense for the time, but it just, we, there is no place for it today, not really any, anyway, and that is the, the litter carrier. And this is not a person who follows around a cat with a you know, little box of litter box just in case he needs to do its business, but rather it's the person who carries somebody of importance around on a litter, which is essentially a box in which the person would sit for protection, or a chair or a throne that has got two large poles that the, the person is suspended upon, and then it has a series of individuals who carry it around. We've seen it all in movies, it's very iconic. Yeah. And this is something that from ancient Egypt into ancient China, around the world, even into the modern Vatican, not that long ago, people were being carried around in this fashion. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, so, it wasn't until, I believe, John the Twenty Third, uh, when he became Pope, that he did away with all the coronation pageantry. I thought it was Pope John Paul I who got rid of the litter. Uh, actually, I think you are right now that I think about it. Yeah, because he was the first Pope to do away with the, the wearing of the tiara, the crown, right. and then being carried in and all that stuff. Because usually the coronation was a very long ceremony. Right, and there was JP too, who also said, you know what, no, we don't need it anymore. Yeah. And up into the modern Pope. Benedict, Benedict yeah. yeah. Basically what they just do is they have an inaugural mass. It's usually a few days after they've been selected as Pope. Well, not only that, but he's, it's been replaced by something way cooler, which is the Pope-mobile. Yeah, the Pope-mobile, right. Pope-mobile is awesome. Which was created as a means of protection after his... After JP2's assassination attempt, yeah. In 1981. Or 1982. 
It was very early into his papacy. What they do do ceremonially now, though, the only thing they really do with the inaugural mass is on the stole that the Pope wears, he's got two crosses that are the sideways. They look, they look like X's. I believe those are St. Anthony's cross. Maybe St. Anthony's cross is the equidistant crosses. But either way, they put nails through, these ceremonial nails through the crosses, and they're worn almost like pins in a weird way. Hmm. But it's by doing, I forgot what the symbolism is behind that, but by doing that, that's, that's more of making it officiating his title, his, his rank. Really? Even more so than being carried on the shoulder of others. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's what's left of it. I think that's what the, only, the only ritual that is left from the litter carrying and yeah. the tiara placement and all that stuff. You better hope in ancient times, though, or in older times, they had a, a, a nice, thin, light pope. Because <laughs> I imagine, you know, the wealthier you are, and this applies to everybody, of course, mm-hmm. who was carried on one of these, not just the pope. Right. But, but I'm sure it wasn't just popes, right? It may have been also archbishops or even probably some higher-ranking yeah, or, or kings and queens of ancient times from around the world. You, you, sure. you better hope if that's your job, you're either extremely strong or you just don't mind carrying yeah. around fat people. Well, the illustration you have shows four people. Well, again, I think it probably depends on the uh, vehicle itself, you know, and how well built it is, and of course, and how well built the person who's sitting in it is. Yeah. Uh, those are all kind of contributing factors, I would say. It's kind of a wild concept because, you know, I can't carry. I wouldn't be able to do that. No, no, I, I can't even imagine being a pallbearer, which is, I guess, yeah. the closest thing to... That is the closest thing that's still around today, I guess, yeah. is carrying the dead. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of carrying the dead, how about carrying out the dead? Carry out your dead. Bring out your dead. Bring out your dead. We, we make light of it from the Monty Python skit, but the truth is it, it really was a, a very dangerous profession and one that was extremely necessary during you know the Middle Ages in Europe during the, the times of the, of the Black Death and plague. I was going to say because there was the chance of them contracting the plague. Very high chance because they were touching people who oftentimes had boils and sores and other things that yeah. were allowing the contraction of that virus. And I imagine there must have been an extremely high mortality rate for the people whose responsibility it was. Yeah. But if they didn't, and they didn't get the dead off the streets or out of the people's homes, then there were going to be many more deaths to come. But not a fun job by any means. And uh, I'd say on par with that would probably be people who had to clean up after executions and things of that nature. Those would be just the worst possible jobs. Yeah, those would be like 30 imagine. jobs. Yeah. Yeah. For more Mike Rose territory <laughs> than, than ours. Well, let me go with a little bit lighter of one. Um, let's talk about the court jester. Oh, yeah. You know, that was a job we don't really have anymore. I mean, in a way, it's evolved. You know, we don't really have someone who works for the president and tells jokes <laughs> the president. president tells jokes himself now. Right. <laughs> exactly. Although, I don't know. <laughs> there might be some people writer. who would <laughs> say that Joe Biden would qualify as a court jester. But <laughs> I actually, I'm just kidding, Joe. No hard feelings. Fight Joe. Fight Joe Biden. Good guy. The interesting thing is the political position that he had, right? Because with any monarch, you know, you're not dealing with free societies, technically speaking. I mean, yes, there are certain unspoken rules that you need to keep your people happy because they will revolt against you and dethrone you. And some other nobleman could be a candidate for the throne, you know, which was basically the first half of English history. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, when you think about it. But the jester had an important role because he was the only one allowed to insult the king and not get executed on, on sight. And if you think about it, having that kind of control is saying that he has control over even the opposition. Yeah. You know? That's true. I never really thought of it that way. Although, I imagine many court jesters, and again, I think we're probably referring to the court jesters of Europe. Yes. Right, of, of European times. I imagine that the court jester probably played it by ear. <laughs> depending on the mood of the king and the type of king that he was dealing with. Uh, because I'm sure there are many court jesters who maybe took it a little too far, maybe got a little too confident, too cocky, yeah. and uh, ended up on the uh, short end of a uh, guillotine or yeah. something to that effect. Well, here's something that I'd like to, to add to that 
first off, we're, we're referencing a list from listverse.com. They are a great website for looking at any kind of top ten list. And they, they have two great lists about odd jobs throughout history. And <laughs> these are definitely on that list. This is number ten on that list. But what's interesting is that in 1999, the Kingdom of Tonga, one of the few remaining monarchies, I think there's only about 40 monarchies left. And these are of thinking of like... Sovereign the, monarchies. Sovereign monarchies, right. Because uh, I believe there's 220 countries in the UN. Yeah, so 47 of them, maybe 40 of them, are about are still considered monarchies of some kind. Whether they are constitutional monarchies or, or what have you. So Tonga is still one of these. It's one of the smallest monarchies in the world. They had an official court jester. And uh, in a bizarre, I'm going to quote the website in this, in a bizarre and very amusing twist, the man appointed happened to be the government's financial advisor. (laughs) And he was later embroiled (laughs) in a financial scandal. Uh, The American gesture to the Tongan court was Jesse uh, Bogdanoff, and he is pictured above. And he is pictured in a very traditional medieval three-pointed hat. Yeah, he's got the hat with the little bells on it and everything. That is ridiculous. Quite weird. Wow. So the former financial advisor was a court jester. I think, yeah, the second job came later. <laughs> he started off as the financial advisor. He ends up being the court jester. <clears throat> it was a slight demotion, but, you know, it was still good paying. Do well, you have something for me? Yeah. What about the whipping boy? Oh, right. I'm going to just correct me if I'm Go wrong with it. this one. Five points. Uh, is The whipping boy was a role appointed for the prince, yes. right? In some monarchies. And the role was whenever the prince had misbehaved, no, it was illegal to strike the prince because he was the heir to the throne. So they would, they would hire a young boy to live in the palace, but would be beaten as punishment. Yeah. Right? That's awful. That's totally awful. <laughs> That's so horrible. Yeah. This poor kid, probably also of some sort of higher birth. I mean, you can imagine that they're not just going to pull any old kid off the street and put him right in the, in the security of the, of the prince's presence. But that's your job, son. You're there to be punished for someone else's bad deeds. And you know there had to have been some horrible, vindictive little prince out there who was perfectly content to be a, a good little boy, but was just so evil that he decided to misbehave all the time for the pure sake of having his whipping boy whipped. Yeah, exactly. Totally messed up. It's Here's really sociopathic, really. Yeah, very sociopathic. <laughs> Here's another one that's weird. Uh, they're called Toshers and Mudlarks. Now, it's funny because I see, see the word Tosher, and I immediately think of the the British slang word for something that's basically, it's like the equivalent of crap, basically. You know, it's this was absolute tosh, you know. Yeah. So a tosher, and it makes sense because a tosher was someone who would scavenge the sewers. And this is prominently in London during the Victorian period, again, referencing List versus title here. Basically, the toshers decided to cut out the middleman, and it was a common sight in 19th century whopping for whole families to whip off a manhole cover and go down into the sewers where they would find rich pickings. So basically, whatever people had thrown out that was of value, these guys would go and scavenge and... Sounds delightful. Yeah, sounds awful. <laughs> but you know what? Thinking about it against the socio-political spectrum at that point, you know, there was some pretty heavy poverty in the Victorian era. I mean, this is when we're really starting to see a three-class society come up. You know, there's definitely the peasantry. Actually, a four-class system, because you have the middle class, and then you have the landed gentry, who were people who had land, but were not officially considered lords. Right. They weren't the nobility. Uh, that's where the term esquire comes from, actually. We call it as that for um, being someone of legal background, but in in Britain, it's esquire is someone who has acquired a major property. And then you had the villagers, and then you had the people who shoveled all their dirt. Right, right. So, for, like, farmers. Farmers were on the same echelon as, like, peasantry. And then, you, of course, you have the nobility and the royalty, right? At this point, there was a very distinct class structure, and this is just a sign of, of how bad it was for the lowest rung in the culture. Especially if you're a, and I might be saying this wrong, but a gong farmer? Gong farmer? Yeah, G-O-N-G farmer. Gong farmer. As in, like, farmer. 
No, as in, oh, human excrement. Let me clean that up for you, please. Yeah. Okie dokie. <laughs> it was their job. Why do you need to farm that? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, from from very old times, keep in mind, the number one thing that we produce that, that can make us sick and, and, and harm us is our own excrement, our own waste. And uh, it was when you were living in this really densely populated environments, even with a, with a modern sewer system, most people lived beyond its means or didn't want to have a, an opening into the sewer because it would cause foul odors to come into their home. And so it was this person's job to go around and collect up everyone's poop. Uh, and so then I guess in it, a way he's harvesting it. Which, okay, so I guess there's the farm reference, but okay. Yes. <laughs> so he's going around and he's getting all the, the waste and he's taking it and, and s- sending it off to the sewer. And there are depictions of these individuals being up to their necks, literally, in human excrement. God. And you can just imagine... Sorry out there, guys. If you were eating lunch while you're listening <laughs> to this podcast, my profound apologies. <laughs> it's um, just, you know, certain jobs like that were just, oh. Here's one that I think when we both talked about this in prep, we, we laughed. The knocker-up. Oh, the knocker-upper. The knocker-upper. The knocker-upper, which is like... Given our current like connotation of that, that means something totally different, right? And this is not this is not this an is ancient not, form of in vitro fertilization. Yeah, this is not a man who just goes around and impregnates people <laughs> for a living. Instead, it's actually the human alarm clock. Really, it is. Yeah. So this was a role that took place during the Industrial Revolution in England and Ireland. And their job. And there's a picture of it featured on Listverse, and it's this guy with a large pole. Yeah, it must be like at least a ten foot pole. And he literally just knocks on windows, like clangs on windows to get people to wake up. Oh, Miss Wilson, wake up! Wake up, you. Wake up. Yeah. I've been knocking on this window for 20 minutes. Wake up. You know, it's funny you bring that up because uh, we didn't find this on any of our lists, which was the, the role of timekeeper. Yeah. You know, and that was a role that was vital in medieval villages prior to the, the creation of clocks. It's crazy to think that we the take clock it for granted. is only about 500 years old in the grand scheme of things. Yes, there were sundials, of course, but those were mostly based on whether it was a clear day. Yeah, right? and not every village or town could afford to have a you know a clock tower in the middle of their square to inform everyone, uh, you know. Yeah, and this is pre-even the invention of that, in the invention of a mechanical clock. The timekeeper was just a, a person who, again, sounds this very straightforward. He was in charge of keeping the time. But the time was not very accurate because, yeah. you know, there were, there were these precepts of what was supposed to be at what time. And he's like, you know, it's, this is 5 o'clock in the morning. How do you know? Because that's when the cock crows. The rooster can be crowing at whatever time he, he wants, but they're using that as the basis. Uh, they're using the natural cycle of animals. Yep. That rooster could have had a very late evening Yeah, and woke up late. Was, oh, God, I'm late right. for work. Oh, the sun's already up. Right. Not only that, but also they always kind of imagine noon was when the sun was highest in the sky, right? But depending on where you are on the planet, the sun's being highest in the sky and also the season is going to be very different. Yeah, I mean, with a sundial, though, I mean, you can get pretty accurate. True. But then again, these are villages who couldn't afford that, right? Or didn't not even had, a sundial? Or maybe had not even thought to build that. But sundials are also, again, they're only accurate when it's clear outside. If it's a cloudy day, it's not going to work. Right. At least That's not true. as well. That's true. Yeah. How about professional mourner? This is one of my favorites. This one still exists. It does. Yeah. And it has its origins, again, in ancient Egypt. In fact, there are many... Uh, depictions of of wailing, crying individuals who have thrown themselves to the ground, pull on their hair, throw dirt on themselves, all in this really grand display of grief. And the truth is, many of them did not even know the deceased at all. It was a very common practice, and it was a job, and it paid very well, because if you could be very dramatic and show that that sorrow without actually having to experience it yourself, it really wasn't that bad of a job, really. And it communicated how great the person must have been. Exactly. Yeah. That takes a whole new form in in interesting ways uh, around the world today. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I believe it's in Indonesia, I could be wrong, but it is not an, an uncommon practice to actually hire strippers to perform at the, at your funeral? at the funerals, yes. <laughs> really? Yes. And, you know, it is a, a different kind of professional mourner, uh, but they are there to entertain the deceased and send them on their way into the afterlife. Can I share a story with you? Let me make a, a more cultural reference. The mourners taken on a whole their life form politically because if you look at Kim Jong-il's funeral that took place just only a year ago, you know, very televised in North Korea, and like the broadcaster who is announcing his, his death is crying as, as she is announcing it. But I also remember, wow. <laughs> and just a quick clarification, sorry to interrupt you, it's actually Taiwan. I apologize. It's Taiwan, not okay. It is in Taiwan where it's not uncommon, and Brian yeah. just said, wow, because I showed him a picture of... It's <laughs> very real practice of one uh, who's basically in brawn underwear, yeah. yeah, in front of the picture of the deceased. And uh, so, going back to what I was saying, sorry, uh, it's okay. Uh, there were close-up shots of people who were like losing their faculties, like they were just beyond. Yeah. And it was to the point where it was laughable because, for those who don't know how crippled of a society North Korea is because of their dictatorship, like these are people who are clearly being forced to show that they're weeping because they're going to get killed probably otherwise, yeah, or on a prison farm, unfortunately, to to make rice. And it was, again, to inflate the, the now the posthumous ego of Kim Jong-il because he was this great you know, descendant of the gods. He supposedly did 11 holes in one, I think, the first time he, <laughs> he, did, he played golf for the first time. Yeah, some very And we're not tales. kidding either. Those, those are real examples of, of what people believe. I mean, it, it is frightening. It is this cult mentality that permeates the entire country. In fact, we could do a whole episode just on the history of North Korea. It'd be an interesting one. It certainly would be. Here's one for you. Shoot. Toad Doctor. Toad Doctor. <laughs> Wait, hold on a second. Let me think about this for a moment. Is this a veterinarian of ancient times, or is this a person who uses toads for medicinal purposes? It's the latter. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So Toad Doctors, again, I'm quoting Listverse, were practitioners of a specific tradition of medicinal folk magic operating in Western England until the end of the 19th century. Oh, really? Yeah. Their main concern was healing uh, scrofula, which is then called the king's evil, was a skin disease, though they are also believed to cure other ailments, including those resulting from witchcraft. They cured the sick by placing a live toad, or a leg of one, in a muslin bag and hanging it around the sick person's neck. Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> Needless to say, this job would also require growing or gathering up a large collection of toads and in the case of doctors who have used just the leg, chopping their legs off to give to the patient. Very odd. One of those pseudo-scientific, you know, this is in the same time period where leeches were still being used to suck out ailments from the blood. And another fun job from uh, ancient medieval Europe, the leech collector. <laughs> That's true. Someone had to go find leeches. And it's funny because this has recently gotten some a slight bit of medical credibility again. Because while it's not safe to bleed somebody to death, that's that's actually quite quite bad, of course, because you're... Just killing them quicker. Exactly. Um, there were some ailments where, because the leech drinks up the impurities that are in the blood, if there's any blood-related illness, a leech may actually help. Right. They're actually filtering the blood and, and getting out those, uh, those nasty things that are in there. Correct. Now, a leech, in as far as the symbiote circle is considered, is a parasite. Right. When they're latching onto their host... Yes, they are draining something from the host, but keep in mind they have to keep that host alive, too, because otherwise when the host dies, they have to find another host, and that makes it more difficult. Well, you know, <laughs> there were a lot of really crappy jobs in the Middle Ages. <laughs> there were some really <laughs> crappy jobs, and God forbid the one the leeches got a hold of you, right? Because that would, that would just be awful. Now, there's a particularly crappy job 
from ancient uh, or from medieval Europe that I wanted to talk about. Well, by the way, what's, what are you referencing? Brains.org, and there's 16 uh, worst jobs through history. It's been my, my primary source here. In addition, just a few other god-awful jobs that I just kind of remember off the top of my head yeah. from, from learning somewhere. For some reason, I have no idea why, but uh, hold on, let me find it. <laughs> Bugger. While you're doing that, I'm going to mention another one from the same list. The Dog Whipper. <laughs> oh, this one's making me sad already. I know, I know. The Dog Whipper was a church official charged with removing unruly dogs from a church or church grounds during services. In some areas of Europe from during the 16th to 19th centuries, it was not uncommon for household dogs to accompany or at least follow their owners to church services. Okay. And if these animals became disruptive, it was the job of the dog whipper to remove them from the church, allowing the service to continue in peace. Dog whippers were usually provided with a whip, hence the title, <laughs> or a large pair of wooden tongs with which to remove the animals. They were generally... <laughs> I'm sorry, things. I just have this image of this priest coming out with these giant tongs. It's probably an acolyte. I, don't think, the, I think the priest is a little busy at the moment. Um, you know, transubstantiating the Eucharist. But uh, they were generally paid for their services, and records of payments to the local dog whipper exist in old parish account books in many English churches. Crazy. To think. So there, there's, there's your documentation for it. Dog whipper, you know, like five pence or whatever it was. So again, speaking of crappy jobs... I think probably one of the crappiest of them all will be the groomer of the stool. What is that? What, so is, the, what is the groomer of the stool? The groomer of the stool was responsible for following around the king to attend to his most dirtiest of uh, <clears throat> activities. And by stool, you mean excrement? Yes. <laughs> okay. Just making sure we're on the same page. Here. Yes. And essentially, it was their job to clean up after the uh, after the king had so what you're basically saying this is the royal ass wiper yes (laughs) (laughs) and I can just imagine medieval Europe some young child growing up and thinking you know I've got so many dreams ahead of me so much that I want to do so many opportunities I could be a leech collector I could go around collecting up these wee little leeches so they could suck blood from people I could also go ahead and collect up people's dung people's poo what a lovely job that would be. Well, if I was really lucky, I could follow around the king all day and wipe his arse. That would be lovely, too. Yeah, growing up in medieval Europe doesn't sound like it was a lot of fun. Not unless you were a noble, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> At least noble. Here's an interesting one. I just love the name of it, because it's very not what it says. It's, it's very counterintuitive to what it says. Resurrectionist. A resurrectionist. A resurrectionist. So a resurrectionist, and there's a great reference to this in uh, Tale of Two Cities. Um, <laughs> there's a character in there who is a resurrectionist. The name escapes me, unfortunately. But um, a resurrectionist is a body snatcher. <laughs> yeah. Oh, lovely. Yeah, and again, a, a job that was done in Britain. All these jobs tend to be British. Do we notice that? I apologize to all of our British listeners. We are not trying to single you out. We just happen to find all these really bizarre and crazy jobs. And they we just haven't happen found to come them. from Other Europe. people have found them. <laughs> yeah. We just happen to find these lists. Apologies. But here's what it says here. In Britain, in Britain, the crime of snatching a body was only a misdemeanor and, was, and so was punishable by only a small fine. This led to a huge industry in body snatching in order to provide corpses to the blossoming medical schools of Europe. One method of bo- the body snatchers used was to dig at the head end of a recent burial, digging with a wooden spade, uh, which was quieter than metal. And when they had reached the coffin, they broke open the coffin, put a rope around the corpse, and then dragged it out. And there's actually a picture of a sculpture of this, a little model 
of uh, oh, wow. the body in a bag. Because the body's usually placed in bags. Yeah. Of course, caskets were very expensive at this point, so usually you were buried in a sack. Well, I believe it was actually more of a crime to steal anything that was on the body. And so I imagine many times they would actually leave behind their personal effects and things of that nature. Or they, you know. Well, these people that they were resurrecting, quote-unquote, were not high-class people. They okay. were just the average. But nevertheless, it was still a crime yeah. to do so. So it was less of a crime to steal a body, but more of a crime to steal their possessions. Yeah. So you could leave their things behind, just not their body. And, and it does say here, yes, they were very careful not to steal clothes or jewelry because that would cause them to be liable for a felony. Because wow. that, be, that would be larceny. <laughs> That's yeah. ridiculous. Quite ridiculous. Aren't you just happy that we live in the world we live in today? Yeah, it's good to see that we've, we're have we not as uh, desperate of a society where we need to find very, very weird ways of making money. Although I will say, at least in the ancient world, a party planner in Rome had a pretty sweet job. Are we talking about the party planner or the other type of planner? <laughs> Well, I don't know if this is what their actual title was, but the it's been thrown around a few times, the, the orgy planner. Uh, and an orgy has a, a very sexual... I'm, I'm sorry, just the, the sheer <laughs> title of that. I remember when I was reading this, I laughed out loud. <laughs> <laughs> an orgy, I mean, obviously has a, a very strong sexual uh, connotation associated with it. In our culture, it. yes, yes. It But, you know, in ancient Rome, it was also generally a really just a great party. That's all. It Having was. recreational sex uh, was not uncommon for these was things a to happen. Of yeah, the party, but exactly. It wasn't necessarily. And you would find, you know, obviously drink and wine being uh, distributed, fine food, entertainment in the form of dancing and singing and music, massages and baths, and all of these things would be going on at the party. At the party, and it was someone's responsibility to plan that. And from some indications, that was a pretty sweet job. They actually got to indulge in quite a bit of what they were actually planning and. Well, you know, it's not exactly for me per se, but hey, it's uh, sounds like it was a pretty, uh, pretty wild time. I can't even. Yeah, there's. <laughs> there you go. I just again, the, that's a skit. It was like, yes, we're gonna have a lovely orgy, and, uh, lots of people. So yes, we're gonna have the bath over here. Yes, that'd be very nice. And of course, the vomitoria over to the right. Yes, bath to the left, vomitoria to the right. Don't want to mix those two. <laughs> um, but uh, to bring it back to to Greece and Rome for a second. I'd like to bring up the weird job of the gymnasiarch. The role of the gymnasiarch was to oil up the athletes and basically, you know, squeegee the, the oil off uh, <laughs> when these guys were working out. So in Greek and Ro- Greco-Roman times, the gymnasium was a place, of course, for exercise. That's where the name comes from, yeah. right? You know, we think of gymnasts. Basically, what a gymnast does was what an exercise was in those time periods. Right. But um, all of these people who would exercise would exercise in the nude. And uh, this person's role was to, I guess, facilitate that by <laughs> by uh, by lubricating them, and it's just I can't say this without it immediately my head going into the gutter, unfortunately. But you have more literature on it. Can you can you well, share some more? They would also have to, of course, clean up after everyone had left and make sure that the the gym was tidy and everything was put away. And so it was more of a kind of a custodial job than it was anything. But it just this really awful added responsibility of having to to grease up some burly and sweaty men. Because you had brought up the idea. Do you want to of, read off of here? Yeah, because you had brought up the idea of mourners, right? And right. this is an even, oh, even more absurd, um, which was the role of a funeral clown. Very strange. Once again, I will be quoting list verse. The funeral clown was paid to dress up as the dead person, wear a mask of his face, and dance about acting like him. This is a Roman practice. The Romans believed that it would placate the spirits of the dead and bring joy to the living. As the funeral processed, the funeral clown would run alongside the corpse with the other clowns making jokes and mimicking the dead. 
Aha. Uh-huh. By our culture, that'd be kind of disrespectful. Very disrespectful. Some clowns were very highly regarded and even got to mock the emperor at his funeral. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Going and back they, to that kind of court gesture mentality. Yeah, and they were well paid and oddly uh, a happy diversion from the clown's regular job as the head of the mime troupe. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So. <laughs> so wait, we have circus clowns. Funeral clowns. Rodeo clowns. Now funeral clowns. And now funeral clowns. <laughs> that, okay. would be, that would be a funny sketch. <laughs> I'm, Somebody order a funeral clown? Yeah, yeah, that's that's me. Just like you hear yeah, someone, the red like, nose. Yeah. someone in the eulogy is just busting up the last here. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone just head turns like, Sorry. It's my job. Come on, what do you want from me? I'm the funeral clown. <laughs> <laughs> well, history has definitely shown us that there are some very interesting positions which totally made sense in their context. But today, out of context, not quite just, so much. Not quite so much. And that makes us think, well, 100 years from now, what are the jobs we have now that are going to be totally irrelevant and sound totally out of context? Podcasting might be one of them. Well, hopefully not. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> At least not in the next uh, few years. No, but you could extrapolate that a little bit. Sure. You, know? you could. Yeah. I'm not going to. I never know. <laughs> no. We got, we got stuff to do. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to leave it up to you. Yeah. But you know what? Why don't you folks head on over to Facebook? Why don't you tell us what jobs these days you think will be outdated 200 years from now? And give us some ideas on jobs that maybe we didn't mention. Uh, Maybe jobs that are going on today that you think are rather odd and strange. Uh, Drop us a line on Facebook. Drop us a line on Twitter, of course. And why not interact with our brand new, beautiful website? Head on over. Send us an email. Join in the conversations on the blog. Check us out. We've got new content that's going up all the time. Absolutely. And, of course, in this episode, we referenced a lot of secondary sites just because we had to, you know. But, um, again, look it up. Yeah, don't take our word for it. If there's anything else that you want to elaborate on that you know about from these jobs, go ahead and pass that on to us. uh, And go out there, do a little research on your own. Find out some other cool stuff and share it with us. And, of course, please, you know, if we got any any mistakes, we are not absolute experts, right? We are pretty knowledgeable. but Well, I am, but you bring me down a level. <laughs> oh, thanks, Eric. That's I'm just kidding. I am so totally kidding. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we're human, so if we yeah. make a mistake, let us know. We are happy to reference it as a correction on our show. And give us more insight. I mean, really, we want to hear from you. We want to elaborate on the things that we've already talked about. We love it when you guys do that. Yeah. And, of course, with that, you can follow us on our Twitter accounts at Nerdonomy and my private one, which is I'm at Brian Moriarty. I am at The Brickmont. You can follow us on our Facebook pages and on our brand new website, as Eric was talking oh, about. Oh, it's so pretty. Go see it. It's beautiful. And through there, you can also, if you want to send us, shoot us an email, you can yes. email us through there I as am well. The Brickmont at Nerdonomy.com. And I am Brian with a Y at Nerdonomy.com. So. Fantastic. Well, Brian, this has been a wonderful episode. I look forward to what 2013 has to come. Thank you, sir, for being my partner in this for the past year. I You're look welcome. forward to this next year, sir. Sir, it's been nothing but a pleasure. Guys, you have a wonderful week. We will talk to you soon.